Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Holy Week. Now, this is a sneak peek into what it's like to be in the RCIA class that I help to teach. We're talking about Holy Week this Palm Sunday. Now, in preparation, I started thinking I could go through the days of Holy Week. Then, well, I should include Palm Sunday because, well, I'll be talking about it on Palm Sunday. To, well, there's the anointing at Bethany on the Saturday prior. I should talk about that. And then it spiraled out of control. Why should I talk about Passover? How can I talk about Passover without talking about Moses? And then ended up at Abraham. And then from Abraham, uh, I it got out of control. And now I'm going to begin the presentation with Genesis 1-1. Um, but hey, I think there's good stuff there. I think that it's going to be fun to do a massive sweep of the Bible all the way up to Holy Week. Jesus only makes sense in light of of the Old Testament, which leads me to an announcement. Typically, as Catholics, we defend three core pillars. That God exists, the God of classical theism, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that he started a church, and that's the Catholic Church. Now, as you can see, those last two segue into each other very nicely. Jesus rose from the dead. Well, what did he do then? Well, you know, he kind of laid some groundwork beforehand, and then he goes and visits the apostles. He, you know, what was it, breathes on them. He does all this stuff. Anyways, he starts the church. <laughs> so that's what he was doing. He was bringing a new kingdom, and that comes to fruition in the resurrection of, of Christ. So that one's, that one fits. Go from Jesus to the church. But how do we go from the God of classical theism exists all the way to Jesus. Doesn't it seem like we're skipping a step? That would be the Old Testament. That would be the truth of the Jewish faith. We need to show that the God of classical theism is Yahweh of the Old Testament. So to help me do that is Rabbi, Rabbi Tovia Singer. He's coming on, I think, next Tuesday. So I'll probably be released that Friday or so. Um, and he's going to help me out on that one. I think he's going to have some interesting things to say. Obviously, we agree about plenty of things, but um, he seems pretty knowledgeable. He's debated William Lane Craig. He's on national um, Israeli radio over there. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Should be a fun fellow. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's jump into the talk. Let's learn about Holy Week. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, Scripture records this done in seven days. Now, does that mean that there were seven literal days, that we should take this as a scientific statement about the, the origin of all things and their chronology? Well, I would contend no. And although many people certainly believe this, um, the church today, the magisterium, would suggest that's not the proper reading. And instead, it seems to support the scientific consensus that the universe is old, as is the earth, um, as is the uh, the life which slowly evolved um, on earth. Now, you'll notice that this might be contrary to what a lot of Protestant groups might think, that this is indeed meant to be literal. Well, here's the difference. The Catholic Church is very much in support of science. After all, it invented the university system. It has in, in its ranks some of the greatest scientists of all time. For instance, some may oppose evolution, but it was a Catholic priest who invented the science of genetics. Some people may oppose the old universe and the Big Bang, but 
The Big Bang Theory was invented by another Catholic priest, George Lemaitre, who even convinced Einstein that it was true. The church is not afraid of science. In a sense, it began science. It started the university system, as I said, and that birthed all sorts of different diverse sciences that we enjoy today. I like to say that the universe is Catholic. And this is why saints like St. Francis refer to the sun as brother sun and the moon as sister moon. So let's jump over to the Garden of Eden. Oh, you know what? I told you, you guys were guinea pigs for this. I'm seeing how long-winded I am, how long this will take. So talking it out here on the podcast. Um, I want to point something out about these seven days. So day one, everything begins. Day two, there is no sun and moon appearing in the sky. And day three is when life begins. So reflect on Holy Week. We have beginning in darkness. We have the coming of the light into the story. We then have the light is gone. And we have darkness. That's like a Holy Saturday, darkness. And then on Easter, the third day, what happens? Life appears on the earth. So even from the very earliest texts we have in scripture, there's something that hints towards the darkness and light, the, the, the emergence of life on the third day. There's something that is telling us, something of Christ that is telling us, and from the very beginning. But let's jump over to the Garden of Eden. Here we're presented a story that, um, that describes our first parents, that describes the fall of man. It describes our relationship with God and how it was broken. But what we're going to focus on is how it describes the priesthood of mankind. Because Adam was a priest. He had dominion over the whole earth, and his job was to order all things in a proper hierarchy with God at the top. And of course, as we know, he failed. And when he failed, we call this the original sin. Now, the original sin is not something that everybody is guilty of because somebody else sinned. Not quite. Scripture says that in no way will God hold the sins of the Father against the Son. So, we are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We are not guilty for their sin. However, Scripture also says that the sins of the father will affect the, their sons to the 10th generation. And of course, 10 being a stand-in for a very long time. And that's what we do see. It's not the guilt of their sin. It's the effect of their sin. And the effect of their sin was to make as default a separation from God. You see, that's what being kicked out of Eden means. It means they went from a place of communion to outside of the place of communion. Now, as baptized believers, we are baptized into Christ. Christ, well, he's a lot of things in this story, but one of them is he is the new Eden. He is the new creation. He is, as we'll see later, the promised land. So when we get baptized into him, we get baptized into the family of God, into the very Trinity itself in the person of Jesus Christ. 
So we enter back into Eden because Eden is the place of special communion between God and man. And today, that place is called Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. Now, before the golden calf debacle, where upon bringing the the tablets of stone down Mount Sinai, Moses finds terrible idolatry um, at the base of the mountain by the people of God. Prior to that, the priest was the father of a family. And that continues to an extent today, where if you are a father, you have a priestly role on behalf of your family. Now, Adam was the father of, of the first family. And that's one of the reasons why we would say that he is a priest. But when Adam fell, it wasn't just him and Eve and any other humans who happened to be around at the time that fell, but it was everything. All of creation fell. So tell me, why would that be? Well, we touched on why the church believes it's in harmony with science a little bit earlier, but let's explain. When we learned of common evolutionary descent, what that tells us is that mankind is part of a family, that all living things are one giant extended family. What does theology say? It says that when Adam fell, the high priest of all creation, all things fell. It also tells us that you have to be part of the family to be that priest. So, There's the harmony. In order for all things to have fallen, he had to be related, part of the family of all other creatures. And he is. We know this from science. But that's not all. See, Scripture says that the rocks cry out the greatness of our God. Well, what was Adam made out of? What are we all made out of? Well, the dust of the earth. We say that there's some type of genesis of life on earth, that the earth, the minerals, the chemicals of earth generated the first life, and that's the material from which we all draw to be. So how do the rocks cry out the greatness of our God? Well, to an extent, in you and I, we are made of rocks. We are made of minerals and dust and and things that we are drawn from in the earth. That's not all. Scripture says the stars reveal his glory. Well, where did the earth come from? Well, the earth came from an exploding star. And some of this material, through gravity, all got bound up in one spot and eventually cooled and became earth. So you were made of stardust, and you can reveal the glory of God. So yes, stars do in their own way. Yes, planets do in their own way. But they also do it through the priesthood of mankind, of which Adam was the first. And we'll hit a little bit more of that later. So, in the fall of man, we sinned against God. And some would say that it seems like a small sin. Why, come on, we just ate some fruit? What's the big deal? But here I want to present a principle. I presented it elsewhere in the episode on hell, I think actually twice. And that is the gravity of the sin is proportional to the dignity of the one offended. 
Give an example. Um, if you punch a tree, no, no real sin there, kind of weird, but not a sin. If you punch a, a cow, well, you're kind of a jerk. Like, don't punch animals. That, that's terrible. It, that's cruelty to animals. You're, you're a terrible person. But yet more terrible is if you found just a random human being and you just hit them. That's, well, that's just an evil thing to do. So as we go up the chain of being, we find that the same action, if directed at a higher order being, um, can have a, a more gravity in its offense. So what would happen if we offended God himself, an infinite being? Well, quite simply, our sin is infinite. But wait, if our sin is infinite, how could we ever make restitution? How could we ever make it right? We can't. By definition, we can't. We're finite beings. We would need an infinite being to pay the infinite debt for our infinite sin. And of course, as you know, the end of the story, we find out that Jesus Christ is the infinite being. He is God himself. So his love in the incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, those things were infinitely meritorious. They, they made a, a wealth of, of merit from his love. And that is enough, because he's God, to pay our debt. And that applies to us, because he's man. So what happened after the fall of Adam and Eve, our first, uh, our first priests of the human family? What happened after they fell? Well, they were given punishments. Now, were they just punished because God's vindictive? No, no, no. Although we call them punishments, I think it'd be more proper to call them a penance. And a penance is a recipe for redemption. It's a way of, of undoing sin. Adam receives his penance as he must toil in the thorns of the earth to eat. And Eve receives her penance, and that is she'll have her, her childbirth will be greatly increased. The pain of her childbirth will be greatly increased. Now, I don't think they understood why these were the penances, but let me explain a little bit by reflecting up to Holy Week, which, you know, apparently is our topic, even though I'm nowhere near the Gospels, but I'll get there. When Jesus toils under the crown of thorns, he is fulfilling the penance that no man could ever do. We were able to toil in the thorns of the earth and make enough bread for us to eat and not die physically. But it's Christ, the second Adam, the new high priest of all mankind, when he toils under the thorns, he brings us a, a food he brings us a bread that can give us life, not just temporally, but eternally, infinitely, because he's the infinite God. And of course, this bread is the Eucharist. But what about the woman? Her pain will be greatly increased in childbirth. Now, according to tradition, when Mary birthed Jesus, she actually didn't have any pain during that birth. But what about 
What about another point in her life? Because she's the mother of Christ, yes, but we also call her the mother of the church. So when did she, in a sense, give birth to the church? Well, tradition says that was at the cross. Most all the disciples, except for John, let's see, Mary Magdalene, if you count her as a disciple, I'd say it would, had fled at the time of the crucifixion. But Mary was there, and uh, she was at the base of the cross. She was there for the entire time where Jesus was being, was being tormented and tortured and finally crucified. Can you imagine a greater pain than that, seeing your perfect, holy child, Jesus Christ, killed, birthing the, the church? When his side was opened up, the water and the blood flows out. Well, those are the sacraments of the church, the, the baptism, the Eucharist. Of course, there are five more, but these are the two which most powerfully connect us into the person of Jesus Christ. Mary was there. That was part of her birthing the church into existence. All right, let's go back to Adam and Eve. They were told by by God that there would be somebody that would come and, and would defeat the serpent, somebody who would make things right. We call this the Proto-Evangelium. Now, I imagine that when Eve became pregnant with Abel, she thought, ah, well, it's been long enough. We've been outside of the garden for so many years. This must be the person who's coming. This has got to be this Messiah figure, the one who's going to defeat the devil, the one who's going to get us back into Eden. Well, Abel is a type of Christ. He was born. He offered correct worship to God, even when his brothers did not. And he was killed. He was a holy person, but he was killed after offering right sacrifice. The problem is he, he didn't rise again. Well, he will in the end of time. But they watched him die. And it seems like death had won. So, imagine the lack of hope that you would have if you were them. God made this promise. He thought it was able, but it wasn't. So, let's fast forward from that depressing scene. Let's get to, let's get to Abraham. Lots of things in Abraham's life, but let's talk about, let's talk about two. One, the call of Abraham says, leave your homeland and come and go to a place that I will show you. Well, at that point, Abraham was like 75 years old. All of his friends, all of his family, his whole life was there, I think, in the land of Ur. I know, strange name. He would have named it something different, but maybe it was cool back then. So he decides that he's going to follow God. He's going to have faith in what God has said. And he's brought to what will become the promised land after leaving everything else. And a covenant, that's the other part I want to talk about, a covenant is struck between him and God. It's a very strange scene. He cuts all these animals in, into parts and he lays them on either side. 
And before he walks between them, he's put into a deep sleep. And this pot and this torch, which represent God, goes through them instead. Now, that is a strange scene for sure. And what this meant was in the olden days, if you cut up these beasts and you lay them on either side, you're saying, I'm making a covenant. And if either one of us fail to fulfill the terms of the covenant, then let let us be torn apart like these animals are. Let that be a picture of what should happen to us. But notice, God doesn't let Abraham walk through. He doesn't let him take that upon himself. Instead, you know who walks through? God alone. What God is saying here is that, yes, you will reach the promised land. Yes, I promise that. And you know what? Abraham, you might not be able to to fulfill your part of the covenant, but I'm going to do both parts of the covenant for you. And that's what God does in the person of Jesus Christ. God is faithful to bring about our redemption. And we deserved to be torn apart for our disobedience. But remember, God walked through in our place. So what he does is, in the person of Jesus, he allows himself to be torn apart at the scourging at the pillar, to be torn apart at the crucifixion, the blood pouring out of him. That's what he fulfills, that strange covenant of Abraham. And it's by his death that we can enter into the person of Christ, who is our new promised land. So let's talk about Isaac a bit. Isaac is yet another type of Christ. He, well, we're still talking about Abraham. Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac. So Isaac carries the wood for his own sacrifice, and they go up this hill. And then he willingly says, okay, I'll be sacrificed. I trust God also. Then before Abraham actually kills him, God presents a ram who's caught in the thorns. So this should be pretty clear how it mirrors what's going on in Holy Week. Jesus, like Isaac, is sinless, innocent. Like Isaac, he carries the wood of the cross, the wood of the sacrifice, on his back, up this hill. And like Isaac, even though he goes to this place of death, he returns back alive. Now, this ram that's caught in the thorns, well, that should bring to mind again Christ in the crown of thorns, who is there as a gift from God so that we, as as humans can be spared, that he can be in our place. Which brings us to his son, Jacob. Oh, what to talk about with Jacob. Let's just hit one thing for Jacob. Have you heard of Jacob's, um, Jacob's ladder into heaven? Not the Jacob's ladder made out of wood. Um, the one made out of, actually, I don't know what it was made out of. But in any case, he's having a dream. He has his head on this rock, and he's sleeping. He uses a rock for a pillow, and Scripture points this out. And he says that he sees the angels ascending and descending. 
So what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, ultimately, the descent of the divine is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jacob was not having a great day that day, you know, rock for a pillow, all that stuff, all the surrounding hullabaloo that was going on. And yet, he's revealed that that something of the divine will come down and something of earth will go up to God. Of course, this is fulfilled in Jesus who both descends as man and rises to heaven in the resurrected body. And by participating in him, we will do the same, rise up to, to heaven. Should we call it there? Again, this is a practice to see just how long and how much more stuff I should pack in or take out or whatever. Let's let's hit one more thing with Jacob. Jacob, I, oh, I should read this story again. I think it's about this time that he digs a well. And it's called Jacob's Well. It is called that all the way up until Jesus' time where he meets that woman at the well. That's where they have the discussion of the living water. Why? Well, Jacob was in a desert. Jacob needed water. Jacob was taken from death to life through this well. Well, Jesus says, well, I'm the, I'm the source of living water. He becomes Jacob's well, that place in the desert that can give life. That'll become a little bit more important later on. Let's move on to Joseph. This one I could talk all day about. Oh, goodness, what should we cover here? Let's just talk about the the resurrection-like typology. So he's betrayed for 20 pieces of silver, you know, 30 pieces in Jesus' day. That's inflation for you. Um, he descends into the earth. In Joseph's case, he he's put into a pit and then later is found to be alive. And his brothers say, our brother who is dead is alive. He has a dream that there's a sheath of wheat that rises up, stands up again. Um, in Latin, resurrect, to stand up again. So this sheath of wheat resurrects. And then all the other um, sheaths of wheat come and bow down before it. And of course, that is true of Joseph in that his brothers come and have to bow down before him because he sits at the right hand of Pharaoh. But it's also true of Jesus. It's ultimately true of Jesus where we come down and we bow down before the one who is resurrected. And of course, this has about as strong of a Eucharistic significance as, as one could ask this story. What is seen? Wheat. Who is it? Well, it's Jesus. <laughs> so in the Eucharist, we bow down before the Eucharist. But what do we see? We see wheat, just like Joseph's dream. But who is it? Well, in Joseph's dream, it was Joseph, but ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. And of course, when Joseph ascends to this, uh, th this place next to Pharaoh, he sends bread from the storehouses of the king in order to save his people from death. Now, it's because of Joseph that they end up settling in Egypt and things go south. They don't have favor anymore. 
And that brings about the whole slavery in Egypt thing. So we'll skip over to Moses. Moses precipitates the exodus out of Egypt. He leaves, he helps them leave slavery through the power of God and enter ultimately into the promised land. And this is, if you want to know how salvation works, this is a really good thing to study is the exodus. Pretty much lays it out. We're going to touch just a few things here. One is the institution of the Passover. You see, lambs were viewed as divine in Egypt. You you can't kill one. In fact, I've heard it was the death penalty to kill a lamb. So what Moses says, because God told him, of course, is that you have to kill a lamb. You have to take its blood and put it on the lintel of your door and on the doorposts. Then you need to eat the lamb. And of course, there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and and there's the bitter herbs, and this makes up a Passover meal and the cups of wine. And you do this so that the angel of death will pass over your house and not kill you. This is fulfilled in the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, where Christ takes the bread and says, this is my body. Christ was betrayed at the same time that the lambs were being given up as sacrifices. These lambs, when they were sacrificed at the temple, were then nailed to a piece of crossed wood with their arms and legs, they don't have arms, with all of their legs spread out. That's what happened to Christ at the cross. At the time where they were marching through with the lambs on these crosses, The Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, was on the cross at Calvary. Scott Hahn talks about the the last cup of wine, how Christ extends the Passover meal all the way to the cross, taking it from being a Roman execution to a sacrifice by our high priest. And that's definitely true. And if you haven't heard his explanation... Go and find it. I'm sure you can. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. The Passover meal. um, Oh, man. More to say. More to say. Go back and listen to the episodes on the Eucharist. You'll get plenty there. Let's jump to... All right. You know what? One more thing with Moses. Nobody prior to Jesus could think of a more important figure than Moses. Moses led the people out of slavery. Moses went up the mountain of God and saw God face to face. Moses received the law from God, written on the tablets of stone by with God's own finger. Moses would go to the tent of meeting and just talk to God, says, as God would talk to a friend. He was called the friend of God. When Moses spoke, it was God speaking. He was so close to God. In fact, when he came down from the mountain, his face was glowing, literally glowing. Moses is about as awesome of a figure as you can find in Scripture. And yet, Moses says, One day, a prophet will rise up who is greater than I. Listen to him. Listen to him, Moses, you went up the mountain of God and got the laws from God himself. 
Listen to someone else greater than greater than you, Moses, a friend of God, seeing him face to face. Whenever our judges can't ultimately settle something, we come to you and you are the voice of God to us. Greater than you, Moses? How? Listen to him? How? And that's yet another pointing forward. So again, we have Adam and Eve saying, well, maybe it will be Abel. Maybe he'll finally give us this deliverance. No, the power of death consumed him. Well, these people said, well, finally we have Moses. I mean, nobody greater than Moses, but Moses dies and he doesn't actually enter the promised land. And even he says, yeah, I'm not, I'm not everything, guys. There's going to be someone greater than me. So all of these, we see a pointing forward, some figure that will come, some figure in the future. And of course, they'll be named the Messiah. Let's talk about, hang on, sip of coffee. Let's talk about Samson. I have promised to do an entire episode on Samson. I've promised to do an entire episode on many things. (laughs) And we will get around to it one day, I hope. But Samson is a type of Christ for a variety of reasons. One is, it says that the Spirit of God um, causes him to want to marry this uh, Philistine Gentile woman. Why would that be? Well, as a type of Christ, Jesus wants to include into the covenant, wants to bring into his family, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And this is one of the first pictures that we're not just talking about an Adam and Eve. We're not just talking about the people of Israel, but God seems to want to include everyone, the whole world, in his kingdom. Also, Samson is unbelievably strong. Samson... Uh, fights against the enemies of Israel and is invincible as long as he obeys God. Now, of course, he doesn't always obey God, and that's where he loses his strength. And he arrives tied to the pillar in our story, tied to two pillars, and he's blinded. And then God gives him strength for the last time, and he takes down the pillars and he kills all of his enemies in his death. Well, that's what Jesus does, though he was obedient to the end. And in his death, that is Jesus pulling down the pillars of death itself, of sin itself, to crush those enemies. How is he blinded? Well, you may recall, Jesus cries out, and I don't know the, was it Aramaic? I should learn it one day. But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, of course, this is a reference to the Psalms, but it also shows that he's pushed himself as far away from the Father as could possibly be. It's like he can't even see God from where he is. It's like he's blinded. So let's move to David. So David is called a man after God's own heart. Oh, story of David. It's long. Suffice to say, he is a good king. And he's the first good king. Saul, a bit of a disappointment. But David is viewed as somebody who, who rightly rules over the people, who fights against the enemies and wins, who establishes a kingdom. Now, 
this kingdom had a promise that David will always have a successor, always, even to the end of time. Well, this didn't exactly happen. Well, it did, but it didn't seem like it did. Because eventually this kingdom was taken over, where the people were brought into Babylonian captivity. It seemed that all was lost. Where was the line of David? Was God false? Were we wrong? Was this not really God's kingdom? Well, I'd point you to the genealogies, uh, let's see, in Matthew, where all of the, the ancestors, not all of them, many of the ancestors of Jesus are named. If you're familiar with Roman numerals, you'll know that they use letters to represent numbers. For instance, I is one, V is five. So you use them interchangeably. Well, the same is true with Hebrews. So some of their letters are also their, their number. Now, the number of generations um, that go from, oh, I forget who, but Abraham to somebody and then somebody else, and then eventually to Jesus, he splits it into three different groups. I should read that so I can quote that at RCIA. Note to self. Anyways, it makes up three sets of 14 generations. Now, 14 has letters attached, and those letters spell something. They spell David. So what Matthew is saying is, so from here to here, how many generations? David. And from here to here, when you thought all was lost, how many generations? David. And from here up to the person that I'm talking about, Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, guess how many generations, guys? David. So David, David, David. That's how he starts his gospel, saying that this kingdom that was promised to not have an end, this this lineage that was supposed to continue forever unbroken, well, guess what? It has. And the generations are David, David, David. He's back. He's back in this person to reestablish the kingdom, to defeat our enemies again, to bring us into a new golden age. But I, I think I moved too fast. We need to hit somebody else. Ezra ooh, and Nehemiah. Remember I said that after David, we eventually have this captivity prior to the first century when Christ comes on the scene. Now, during this time, a, a good king comes into power in Babylon. Oh, I forget who it is. Darius? Not Darius. Somebody. Anyways, a good king comes in and says, you know what, Jewish people, you can, um, or Israelite people, Hebrew people, there you go. There's the upper lower kingdom. Um, I think you just say Hebrew to cover them both. You guys can go back to your promised land. You guys can rebuild your place of worship. In fact, I'll fund it for you. Have fun, kids. So they do. They go back and they face resistance. Um, the people who see them coming are not happy. This was their land for hundreds of years. I don't care that it was before that, your ancestors' land. Good night. Stop coming into our country. Stop trying to build your temple and acting like this whole place is yours. Understandable, I suppose. But nevertheless, under fierce resistance, they rebuilt the temple. 
which is a massive undertaking. <laughs> and when they rebuilt it, they, they, they rebuilt it according to the law. Now, a lot of the law, a lot of the writings were lost, but they found them again. And when they found them, they said, these are the ancient writings of our people. And everybody gathered around and they read it out to them. And they were, every single person for, I think it was like a couple of days, just stood around and heard it. These ancient words from back at a time when they worshiped at a temple where God was there. And they, they decided that they would bring it back. Well, there was one thing that they couldn't bring back. Yes, they could make a new Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, they could make a new everything. But in order for it to be a temple... In order for it to be a place of sacrifice, in order for it to mean anything, <coughs> it had to have the holy fire of God return. God had to do something. God had to accept the sacrifice. So the day came. Everything was in place. All the people were there. And the high priest does the sacrifice. And everybody I'd imagine was a bit nervous. If God didn't send down the fire from heaven, well, none of this is real. None of this matters. Who cares? Maybe the scrolls were wrong. Maybe we aren't who we thought we were. But at the prayer of the high priest, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And I'm sure the crowd went wild. So there it was. The temple is restored. So why do I tell this story? Well, for those in RCIA, we're in a similar position. Whether you came from a Protestant background or an atheist background, you've been presented these ancient writings, our scripture. We've read them to you. You say, all right, okay, that's interesting. I've stayed to listen, and you have. We've said that we're going to do the ceremony, either baptism or confirmation. We're going to do all these things. We have the building. We have the priesthood. But you may still have a question. Is this all for naught? Does this matter? Is God really going to be there? What you're asking is the same thing that has been asked at many other ages. For Ezra and Nehemiah, the answer was yes. Because of our obedience, God will send the fire down upon us. And again, that's what happened in Pentecost. The fire of the Holy Spirit came down upon them, tongues of fire. And that is what the church promises you on Easter, that the Holy Spirit, the very fire of God will come upon you because you have been obedient to his call. You have set your life in order according to the scriptures. So let's move on a little bit. After this period, we reach Hellenization, which is where the Greeks came and took over. And eventually they're kicked out, and you can read that in the Maccabees. During this period of time, there's a bit of a synthesis we have the scriptures, but now we have this Greek philosophy, the idea of the logos. 
and we have a new rabbinic idea that that there's two powers in heaven, like two Yahwehs. Well, that sounds strange. That sounds heretical. That sounds wrong. But there's something there. They start to see an outline. Two powers in heaven. This logos created the world. Maybe the logos is the second power. And of course, during this time, they realize that the prophecies of the Messiah are coming very soon. And this is the the stage that we have set. We have a synthesis of tradition and reason. We have the idea of a logos, this other Yahweh. We have the prophecies that are just about ready to come true. It's the first century. We should be expecting the Messiah any time. And of course, there are many claimants, and some of them were, were killed. I think some were even crucified. And when they died, well, nobody believed them anymore because they're dead. Remember, Abel, he died. Well, that's not the Messiah. Moses, well, I mean, he led the people out of Egypt, but he died. Abraham, he died. Noah died. David, he, he died. Solomon, he died. Elijah, well, he went up in the fiery chariot. But hey, anyways, bad example. But you get the point. <laughs> we see time and time again, if death wins, that's not the Messiah. So that's the stage. We talked about the David, David, David in the Gospels. Let's get to, ooh, let's talk about Mary. Remember when God was talking to Eve, he says, um, the seed of the woman will, will crush the head of the serpent, something like that. Well, what on earth does that mean? There's no such thing as the seed of a woman. But in the virgin birth, this is revealed that out of Mary is drawn the very material that creates Jesus Christ. Now, oh, what king was it? Was it Hezekiah? Some king. The uh, prophet says, hey, ask of God a sign. Make it as great as the heavens, as deep as the seas. And he goes, oh, um, no, I'm not going to test God. It's, um, you know, it's cool. Reveals his lack of faith. Though he's trying to put a religious veneer on it. And instead, this prophet says, fine. God chose for you. A virgin will give birth. Well, the sign that, that's long awaited is Mary, the virgin who gives birth. The seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Well, that's Jesus. And it's her body given to Christ so that Christ can become our sacrifice and give his body to the rest of us. There are plenty of other parallels with, with Eve and the Ark of the Covenant, but I digress. Okay, so then Christ has his ministry, all of these things. Let's get to Holy Week, finally. Well, not quite. So the Saturday before Palm Sunday, um, there's a scene where, where this super expensive um, perfume is broken. Um, it's nard, whatever nard is. And it's poured on Jesus. It anoints him for his death. Now, Judas says... Why did you do that? I mean, that, that was really expensive. That, that was a year's wages. 
Um, we could have sold that and just given it to the poor. It says that this story, what this woman did, will be shared everywhere where the gospel is preached. And hey, sure enough, it has. What this is, it's telling us a variety of things, but one of them is we're meant to contrast what this woman does with what Judas does. She happily, um, joyfully gives of the most expensive things that she has to make Christ more, more beautiful. She gives to God the things which are valuable to her. But what does Judas do? Well, it says that he holds the money bag and he would steal from it. He instead sees the things that could go to God and wants them for himself. He wants to steal from the money bag. And of course, we can even give this, I've talked much about Marxism and how it's evil. You can find it in the Garden of Eden, but you can also find it here. How often in our culture do we hear something like this? Why is the the church in such fancy buildings? Or why do people have such expensive things? Or, or couldn't you just, couldn't we tax them? Couldn't we give it all to the poor? I think we're told here that that's often disingenuous. People who claim that they just want to help the poor, they often hold the money bag. If you look at any communist, socialist country, the people who hold the money bag are the government. And they've been stealing from it. They live very well. They pretend they they like the poor, but they don't. What they like is to try to take to themselves that which belongs to the worship of God. So be on guard for that. Anybody holding the money bag and telling you that they care for the poor. So why was, was, was Jesus anointed in this way? Well, let's reflect back a little bit with David. It's another person who was anointed for his task of being king. And king is about two things. One, battling with the enemies. And two, providing for the people. So what does Jesus do at the cross? Well, he battles the enemies of sin and death. What else does he do? Well, the other kingly role. He provides for us the things that we need for life. The bread of heaven. Let's keep going, though. Palm Sunday. We've reached Palm Sunday. Remember I talked about Jacob's well. This place of water in the desert. The same place that Jesus meets this woman and says, I am the, uh, was it, I am the water of life or I don't know, something about him and water. You get the point. He is the life in the desert of our world. He is the Eden that has come back. He is the promised land. He is the oasis. Now, when Moses was leading everybody out of Egypt, they were in the desert. And at one point, the, the writer says that um, they see 70 palms or 72 palms, something like that. And it's an oasis. It means that there's water. It means that they're going to be okay. There's going to be life. 
Later on in the Gospels, when Jesus is starting his church, he sends out the 70 or 72. I should check that. My goodness. Note to self again. And what does this mean? It means that those palms in the desert, they were a symbol of what Christ would send out, the church. So what happens when we hold up the palms in mass? What do we do? do? Well, we're holding up the leaves. We become the trees. (laughs) That's what we're doing. We're holding the leaves up. We look like the palms in the desert. Why? Because the church is meant to be the oasis for sinners, the place where we find living water. If you are being baptized, that's where you've come. You've come out of slavery, through the desert, to the oasis, to the new Jacob's well, to the person of Jesus Christ, whose side was open and living water poured out to save you from death. Okay. The reason they were holding these palms, hang on, let me check just how long I've been yattering on. Oh my goodness. All right, cool. Let's take a brief break here. We're up to 53 minutes and then we'll be back and we're going to talk about the ways that we invite God into our lives, what we do when we see Jesus. Okay, let's talk about how we... uh, how we invite Jesus into our lives. Now, I want to make a contrast. One is between the people who are holding up the palms, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, bringing Jesus into Jerusalem, the holy city, laying down the palms on the road so that he can walk across it. This triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Pretty awesome. Good job, guys. All that looks great. But wait, something's wrong. In just a day or a couple days, they're going to be chanting, crucify him, crucify him. So what do they not understand? What changed their mind? So keep them in mind for a second. Let me give you another one. When Jesus meets the demoniac who is in the tombs, he says, are you here to destroy me? Well, it turns out Jesus isn't here to destroy him. It turns out Jesus is not his enemy. He's the enemy of his sin. He's the enemy of the demons which inhabit him. He's the enemy of the lies which he's baked into who he is. Yeah, he's the enemy of those. But what he finds at the end is that Jesus represents liberation, freedom, He becomes an evangelist. He goes into the city and says, this man freed me from this. I think he's the Christ. So what do we see? Well, these people with the palms, they start out right. Then they become evil. But this other person, he started out evil. And then he ends correct. Let me suggest a few things. The people who are saying Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, welcoming him into Jerusalem, They had a certain expectation of who the Christ would be. They thought that he was going to create an earthly kingdom. They thought that he was going to defeat the Romans. They thought that their life was in order and Jesus would come and make it better. Now, when they found out that actually this Christ was telling them to 
follow the path of the cross. That actually, he was allowing the Romans to kill him. And that the kingdom that he was establishing was not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. Well, this this changed their mind. They shouted, crucify him. It revealed their hearts. So what about the demoniac? Well, may I suggest that he had maybe not many virtues, but he seemed to have some type of self-awareness that we might call humility. He sees Jesus and he knew who he was. He knew that he was the Christ. He also knew that he was a threat to his way of life. And that's something that those with the palms didn't know. He knew that his life would be altered, even destroyed by the coming Jesus. Not so with the people of Jerusalem. They thought that their life would be augmented. Jesus would be something over and above all the nice things that they have already. But that's not exactly the case. So with the demoniac, he fears this change because he knows the identity of Christ. And then when he's freed, he goes from the place of death to the place of life. From being alone to being in community. Again, contrast that with the people in the palms. They start in a place of community. They're all out on the streets. They're all holding these palms. They're all doing the same thing. And then we, we see a scattering. Afterwards, when they chant, crucify him, crucify him. Well, they may have come together there to ask for the death of our Lord, but there's nobody who's coming together saying, well, we are the Hebrew people. We, we are the new earthly kingdom. No, that whole idea was shattered. They realized that, I guess we're Romans. And that's what they did. They asked Rome to do their dirty work. So this identity as a common people was shattered, and it's reduced to just an identity of of protesters to Rome, for Rome to then bring about what they now wished, for them to turn on their God. I'm sure we could go more into this, and I think I have at one point. I don't remember. It's in an episode. But let's leave it there, that we need to look at what each person got right, each person got wrong. The demoniac was wrong that he would be destroyed. No, only his sins would be. But the people of Jerusalem were wrong that that nothing would change and Jesus would give them only more wealth and plenty. They were wrong about that. The truth was a little bit of both. That the, the plenty, the wealth, the joy that Christ brings, well, that is the way of the cross. That happiness is the virtuous life. They're the same thing. We know from Thomas Aquinas and other saints that the moment of Christ's greatest joy was on the cross. And that's where ours is too. In the midst of suffering. And that when God comes into our life, he will change it. And it will hurt. But it's in that suffering that we'll find our greatest joy. So, after Palm Sunday, we have, let's see, after that would be the Passover meal that he celebrates with his disciples in the upper room. 
Let's let's focus on a few things here. We've had a Eucharistic theme that has followed this, this talk, and let's continue it. When he holds up the bread, he says, this is my body. That's a revolutionary statement. That is not what you say in a Passover meal. If you can imagine the disciples who are all Jewish families, of course, they're used to the father of the family saying the prayers that they had said for hundreds of years. And yet Jesus, he breaks from this. He, as the father of this family, shows that there's something more that the Passover was revealing, that death itself, well, we avoid this by being joined into the very body of Christ. Now, often John 6 is used to speak of the Eucharist, and of course it should be. Um, and this one is glazed over, but, but I think this one's important. Put yourself in their position. This is a radical difference from what their fathers had always told them. I believe the, what he would have said is, this is the bread of the, um, oh, this is the bread of the Passover, or this is the bread of the Exodus that our ancestors ate while they left Egypt. I should ra- ask Rabbi Tovia what exactly you pray, or what exactly you say at that time. He will know. Um, but that's true, isn't it? That when he holds up this bread and says, this is my body, well, it's also the bread that we eat as we move from slavery into the promised land, which is union with Christ, and ultimately union in heaven with Christ. Oh, more things to say there, but we shall press on. Because we're aiming for an hour. I think that would be good. It's not going to happen. We're going to aim for an hour. So after the Passover meal is the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, we see Jesus... Um, we see him at a rock. He's praying at this rock in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about Jacob a little bit, right? We talked about how he fell asleep on this rock, and then he sees this, this great ladder, these angels ascending and descending. Well, what happened at the prayer of Gethsemane? Well, tradition says that Jesus saw all the sins of mankind. But it also says that angels came to strengthen him. So what did he see? Well, he sees the descent of angels at this rock, like a new Jacob. He also, by seeing all the sins of mankind, sees how we have descended into depravity. And he sees where he has descended into. He sees the depth of the sin, which he has identified with by taking on human flesh. Now, later on that night, they come to arrest him. What should I hit here? Think, Jake, think. All right, let's talk about, let's talk about Peter. I think he has an understandable reaction. The servant comes up and he's with the high priest and Peter swings his sword and he takes the ear, the right ear, off of the servant. Imagine that motion. You're right-handed, presumably. 
and you pull the sword out of its sheath on your left, and in one motion, you're swinging for his head. And he probably leans to dodge the blade, and it nicks his head and cuts his ear off. What does that mean? Why is this detail included? What does that mean for Christ? What does that mean for us? Let me suggest a few things. When we're presented with the enemies of Christ, we can have a few reactions. One is to scatter. That's definitely wrong. Another is to just give in. Also wrong. Another one, and this one is is one that, that certainly I would go for, is the Peter response. Try to cut their head off. And when you do that, when you respond with that type of violence, Scripture shows that we cut off their ears. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, here's what I would suggest. When we see people who are enemies, maybe in the culture it, it could be, oh, the Marxist hordes that I bang on about, people who seem to be very antithetical to the gospel. Um, when we respond with violence, when they try to come and take our Lord from us, when they try to come and assault the things that we love, and we seek to kill them, to do violence to them, what we end up doing is removing their ears. That means they can never hear us again. That means that they can't ever have the gift of faith begun in them. Because scripture says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So I think this is a call that no matter the betrayal of us by our culture, no matter the assaulting that our enemies may do against us and even our Lord, we are never to respond in a way that will cut the ears off of our enemies because God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but instead wants all to come to repentance. That's what we should want. Let me suggest one more thing here. If you read... I think it's Levitical law. When you become a priest, you are marked on your thumb and you are marked on your right earlobe also with the blood of the sacrifice. This is how you can join the priesthood. You can become a priest. Well, if this is the servant of the high priest, I don't know, maybe he could have been a priest himself one day. But what Peter did was he removed his right earlobe. He removed the possibility of him becoming a priest. I think that's another effect of what happens when we respond with violence, with vengeance, um, is we, we take away other people's ability to join into the, the, the priesthood of all believers. So after this, Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate. Now, I have a whole podcast just on not a whole podcast, a whole episode. That would be weird if I had a whole podcast on Pontius Pilate, the Pontius Pilate podcast. It does have a ring to it, but I'm not starting that because I don't have that much to say. But I do have an episode worth, and you should listen to that one, I think. It's pretty good. He appears as kind of a sympathetic figure. He doesn't want Christ to be crucified. Um, I think a lot of us can identify with that. I think we're meant to in the story because... He, to a great extent, is a stand-in for us. Where maybe we're not the demoniac, 
who just rejects Christ and, and thinks that he's there to destroy us. Maybe we're not the people of Jerusalem who totally misunderstand him and think that he's just there to kind of bless what we're already doing. Maybe we're Pontius Pilate, somebody who finds him interesting, somebody who doesn't want to see anything happen to him, but at the same time just doesn't have the courage to use his power to oppose the mob, to go against the social consensus. I think that's where a lot of us are. Again, listen to that episode. We'll, we'll call it there. Let's talk about another character. So Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, he says some words that I think we should, we should kind of dwell on. He says it is better for one to die than for the whole nation to perish. It says that he said this because he was the high priest at the time, and this was by the Holy Spirit. I think that tells us a lot about um, how God works with even apostolic succession, with even popes that we don't like. Um, can't think of any of those, but <laughs> all right, maybe you can. Um, that even when our leadership, even when our pope is dreadfully evil, saying this one's dreadfully evil, but certainly Caiaphas was, the Holy Spirit can still speak. Even if they don't intend for the right thing to be spoken, even if they intend a different meaning, they can still speak truly. That's what John tells us. And it's true that it's better for one to die than the entire nation. And that was fulfilled, obviously, with Jesus. Though I'd say that this kind of has another meaning that relates to us. Oftentimes, we think of our salvation in more Protestant terms, us and God, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's true, and we should think of it that way. But it was never just pers personal. It was never just Adam, then in another garden, just Eve. No, they shared one common place. They had communion with God, but they had communion with other. When we look at our old life, when we look at the life of sin that, that many of us have embraced for many years and to an extent even today, we have to realize that it's living that life which breaks us from God and neighbor. And it is better for the old man, as Paul would put it, to die than for the whole nation. I think that means that to follow Christ's footsteps means to recognize that our sin affects others. It's not just us and Jesus. It is us, others, and the three persons of the Trinity, for that matter. So we ought to die to ourselves, not just for our own salvation, but because it affects everyone else. Now, the, the crowds that chanted, crucify him, also shouted something else. They said, release Barabbas. I, I talk a little bit about this um, Barabbas character in recent episode, The Three Languages of Politics, which you wouldn't think had commentary on that, but apparently that section of scripture got in there. And I point out that Barabbas's name is Jesus Barabbas. So the crowd literally has a choice between two Jesuses. Jesus Barabbas was a thief. He was also a revolutionary. 
What does that tell us? Well, that Jesus is like our first parents, Adam and Eve. They were thieves. The fruit of that tree wasn't theirs. It wasn't theirs to take. So they were thieves. They were also revolutionaries. Revolutionary is one who looks at the the power structure, specifically a a properly ordered um, God-ordained power structure, and decides that they're going to be violent against it. They want to assert their power over what God has presented as just authority, the revolutionaries. That's also what happened at the tree. Well, God is just doing this to stifle us. God doesn't want us to be like him. Why, if we stole from him, we, we could be in the place of God. That's a temptation that all of us have. That's somebody that we often release in our own lives, is the one who says, I'm the standard of good. I'm the standard of evil. I decide what's right and wrong. That is, that's the wrong Jesus. The right Jesus is not a revolutionary. Instead, he doesn't fight against the rulership of Rome or even Caiaphas the whole, the, the, uh, the high priest. Instead, he upends the entire system through radical love, self, self-sacrifice, something that has nothing to do with theft. When you self-sacrifice, you're giving the greatest gift you can possibly give to others. When you're a thief, you're taking from others. When Christ went to the cross, it was an act of obedience. But when Barabbas and all of us choose to make ourselves a standard of right and wrong, that's an act of disobedience. Now, I was recently having a uh, conversation where um, where somebody was talking about contraception and how they didn't really want to be Catholic because they just didn't know how they could accept that teaching. And I relayed a story to them about my own conversion where a good friend of mine said, Jake, do you really believe everything the Catholic Church teaches? I thought about it and there was a Bible right there. And I said, well, I picked up the Bible. I said, do you believe everything the Bible teaches? And he said, well, yes, of course. I asked, well, do you know everything the Bible teaches? No. Do you understand everything the Bible teaches? Well, no. And I could have gone on and said, do you follow everything the Bible teaches? And all of us fail. So the answer is no. But he said, yeah, but but I understand it's the authority. I said, well, that's what I see the church as. So... I don't know where I was going with that. (laughs) Thus, I practice on you guys. I should probably do the other way around because more people listen to this than RCA. But I don't see you. And you don't send me enough emails. So, well, you seem like nobody at all. Just talking in my pillow fort to my iPad. Maybe that's all I'm doing. I don't know. Where was I? I thought that delay would allow me to get my train of thought back. I should edit this out. But it's too many buttons to push. All right. Back to, back to the two Jesuses. So we don't want to release Barabbas. We don't want to be revolutionary. There we go. We don't want to be revolutionaries, right? We don't want to enter the church saying, I want to upend things. We don't want to enter the church saying, I want it to conform to my standard. Instead, the path of Jesus is saying, there is right authority and I will obey it. And for us 
finite beings, that means not always understanding things. And that means recognizing that when we fail, we confess, we'll become humble before God. And that the sacraments of the church are meant to give us the grace that will empower us to both understand the teachings and to be able to live them out in our life because it's humanly impossible. But through God's grace, it becomes supernaturally possible. Okay, moving on. Isaiah says of the suffering servant, by his stripes we are healed. What does that mean? Well, at the pillar, Christ is, is, uh, is, is beaten and flogged and whipped, and his skin is literally pulled off him. Incredibly painful, I'm sure. But let's go back to the Garden of Eden. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves with the fig leaves. And by the way, have an episode on the fig tree. It, I believe, was the, the tree um, of uh, knowledge of good and evil. I have a number of reasons, some of which are in the episode, many of which are, but I have more. Just read one today. Um, but they cover themselves with these leaves, and that's not a sufficient covering. The things that we make for ourselves will never cover our sinfulness, will never um, be able to bring us back into communion with God and man. It's not possible. So what God does is he takes, um, I believe, two sheep, one sheep, one sheep, two sheep, whatever, and he sacrifices them and he takes their skins and he makes them garments out of the sheep. So what does God do with the original sin of Adam and Eve? He takes the skin of the sacrifice and gives it to them as a covering. And this actually becomes, according to, I think, Jewish tradition, the clothes of the priesthood. It's believed that the skins, which are referenced, um, or the, the clothes, I think it says skins, that are referenced by Noah, were these skins passed down from Adam. They were the original high priestly garments. It was how we came before God, clothed in this skin. So by his stripes, we are healed. What does that mean? It means that Christ is restoring the priesthood of all believers and this special ministerial priesthood, which is present in the church that he established. And he does that by giving, as a sacrifice, his own skin, his own, his own, well, we would call it the persona Christe. So when a priest says, uh, says the absolution in confession, he's standing in the place of Christ. What does that mean? Does it mean he replaces Christ? No. It means he does what Adam did. He does what Noah did. It means that he has the the skin of Christ. He's in the person of Christ. And it's from that place that he he can approach God, that he can approach the sin of humanity inside of Christ. So by his stripes, that's where our healing comes from. That's why I want to particularly highlight that connection to confession. That's where we're healed. That's where our soul is healed. 
So after this, he carries the cross up to the top of the mountain. And we talked about how that that mirrors what Isaac did. Um, it mirrors many other places. But I want to point out that this isn't the first time that he was carrying these heavy beams of wood. After all, he was he was a carpenter. His father was a carpenter worker of some type, but we believe that he was some type of woodworker. He probably, for his earthly father, carried a lot of beams of wood. Jesus was physically strong. Not only was he spiritually, mentally, but also physically up to the task. Because we don't draw this distinction between our body and our soul as if these are two radically distinct things. We believe that we are one thing. We're a person, body and soul, like a composite. So the strength of his spirit is mirrored in the strength of his body is up for the task of salvation because he trained for this. He prepared for this because the obedience to his earthly father, Joseph, prepared him for obedience to his heavenly father in carrying the cross for our salvation. Now, when he arrives at the place of crucifixion, it's it's called the place of the skull. Well, whose skull? It's believed that Adam's skull was there. So the place where the skull of the first man was, representing death, is the place where the new Adam goes to die and then bring us life. Let's talk about a few things with the crucifixion. Um, One is where Mary was. We talked about Mary a little bit before. She's standing, she's at the base of the cross. The blood, the sweat, the water is coming down on her. Um, she sees her precious son dying there. On either side are two other crosses, thieves. And I want you to reflect back to the uh, to the Old Covenant again, to the Ark of the Covenant. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest comes in and sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. The mercy seat is at the very top of the Ark of the Covenant, is supported by the Ark of the Covenant. And to either side, there are cherubim with their wings spread out. So what do we see here? In this scene, well, there is Jesus, the mercy seat, the very place of atonement for all of mankind's sins. What's supporting it? What's right underneath the mercy seat? What's the Ark of the Covenant? Mary, who's later seen in Revelation as the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what's to his right and what's to his left? Well, instead of cherubim, these great holy creatures announcing the glory of God, we have two thieves with their arms spread out like the wings of the cherubim. God has recreated the Ark of the Covenant, the Day of Atonement, on a mountain where all can see. And it's at that point that the, that the veil that separates God and man is torn. The Holy of Holies, that 
that, uh, that curtain, which curtains it off, is open. Why? Because God's saying, look, look inside. You can see where your atonement happens. That, of course, is in the person of Christ. We talked a little bit about his last words, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and if, I, I think there's a few other important ones. And we, and we could talk all day about just his last words, and there's people who do. Um, let's say, which one should we? Let's pick one. Let's pick one. Um, how about I thirst? What does that mean? Now, there's a number of things he did say from the cross, but we have to remember it's quite limited. He would literally have to push himself up off the nails in order to breathe. And at that point, that's the only point that he can, he can speak. And he says, I thirst. Is this a detail just about how thirsty Jesus was? No, I don't think so. Now, I think it was St. Augustine? somebody who points out that what he's thirsting for is our faith. That that's what actually satisfies Christ at that point. He, he doesn't want just earthly drink. He wants us to see him on the cross, us to see him not just with natural eyes, but us to receive the beatific vision, the vision of God himself, so that point of the crucifixion is an invitation for us to point our eyes of faith that are installed at baptism towards this very moment where God in the person of Christ recognizes us even in our sin. And instead of saying, it's you who did this to me, he invites us to himself. So after he dies, says it is finished, and gives up his spirit. He descends into hell. Now, there's also an episode on the descent into hell. Um, lots to say about this. But let's leave it to... Let's leave it to this. We kind of had a theme going so far that throughout salvation history, there have been people who pointed to the Messiah but weren't the Messiah. That again and again, we see death wins. Well, this is the point where Jesus challenges death, challenges hell, face to face. And in the words of Paul, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Christ's resurrection after the descent into hell not only gives life to all others who, who went before him in faith, people like Abraham, people like Isaac, uh, people like Moses, but it also vindicates his claim to both divinity and to being the long-awaited Messiah that everybody um, was ultimately looking looking towards. And of course, that has brought us to Easter, the resurrection on the third day, the very day that life sprang forth on earth. That is the day that Jesus chose to bring new life to the world. Third day is important for a variety of other reasons. Um, but 
let's let's just focus on that one a little bit longer. What does it mean to have a new creation? What does it mean that that Christ is inaugurating a new heaven and a new earth? Well, principally, I think it's talking about what we've referenced earlier, that the promised land, the Garden of Eden, all these things are ultimately found in Jesus Christ. And that the resurrection is only possible by joining ourselves into him, in baptism, in the Eucharist. And Scripture says that Christ is our inheritance. Christ is our reward. And that the life that the Trinity had from prior to creation, one where God the Father sees himself, and in himself he sees the second person of the Trinity, Christ, and he loves that person, which that love is the Holy Spirit. That's the family that God wanted to invite us into. Um. Oh, man, I want to go to a variety of places, problem of evil, things like that. But I think we're going to have to we're going to have to cut this short. We're already way too long. Thank you for being the guinea pigs. I think we could talk about the appearances briefly. That's what happens right after Easter. What would you say if you met with your disciples, people you trusted, people who you loved and people who who fled at your moment when you needed them most to support you. Well, actually twice, once they fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then when you get crucified, they pretty much all run away, except for John. Good job, John. Well, if I came back and saw them after being resurrected, I would be, I'd be a little mad. I'd say, hey, you guys, guess what? I'm back. I did all this stuff for you. I told you I would rise again. You didn't believe me. Maybe he'd come back with punishment. But that's not what happened. When Christ appeared to his, to his disciples, his words were peace. And then, in the case of Thomas, he dispels any lingering doubt. And he does so by showing him the actual body that suffered for them. And I think that this shows us how we should expect Christ to show up in our lives, particularly after you've become fully Catholic through baptism and confirmation. And that is, don't expect that Christ is there simply to chastise you for your lack of faith up to this point. That's not what he says. What he'll say after Easter is peace. And whatever lingering doubts you have after being confirmed, after being baptized, ask him. Reach out and say, God, can I touch your wounds? Because let me tell you that since I became Catholic, my faith has increased. God has shown himself more to me. That's same true with many other people I know who's, who've converted. We've all been Thomas. We've all had doubts, and you probably still do. Know that when Christ comes to us, he comes to dispel those. He comes to bring peace. And more than most anything else, he, he then sends us out. He sends us out on mission. That's what the Mass is. It's the sending. It's like a, that's where the, the word missile comes from. It means something, it means a projectile or something that's launched or sent. 
mass means that we are sent. That's what the appearances of Christ are, are, are meant to do. It's meant to send us to preach the gospel, the evangelium, meaning the good news of the great victory. And the victory that, that is ultimately over is over sin and death. And that's what we've been trying to show by going from the very beginning all the way till now, is that up until the resurrection, death always won. We had great warriors against it, Moses and, and, and David and Solomon, but ultimately they were all killed. But it's in Christ that our enemy is finally defeated. And it's up to us to spread the news of that victory. Okay, we're going to call it there. Um, I do have this secret trick of how to uh, pack more into less time, and that's talking faster. So I think I'll have to do that because this ran a little bit longer than I'm looking for. But I hope you enjoyed that little sneak peek into what I tell the RCIA people. And I hope you have an awesome Palm Sunday and an even better Easter. All right. Um, as usual, if you have any questions, comments, or even hate mail, I like all mail, so send me whatever. Um, you can email me at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. Um, I think I've said before, upcoming episodes, we have um, uh, Vanessa coming on Saturday, and then we have Rabbi Tovia. I think I'm going to go ahead and release the article that's still, I don't know, half to three-quarter baked on a new argument for the finitude of the past. Not sure how many people are interested in that, but hey, I'll pair it with some mailbag and some other interesting things um, in case that one isn't fun. But I think it's fun, um, thus I share it. All right, well, if you enjoyed this episode, any other episode, if you have friends and if you like sharing, share it with your friends. And if you didn't enjoy this episode, share it with your enemies, and I'll talk to you next time.